Welcome to Break the Ice with Mike Vogel, presented by Power Up Premium Trail Mix, the official trail mix of the Washington Capitals. Everyone, welcome to another edition of Break the Ice. We're going to do something a little bit different this time. Uh, bit of a book review. Uh, pleased to be joined by Steve Courier, the author of When the NHL Invaded Japan, the Washington Capitals, the Kansas City Scouts, and the Coca-Cola Bottlers Cup of 1975-76. And Steve's also the author of The California Golden Seals, A Tale of White Skates, Red Ink, and one of the NHL's most outlandish teams. Both of these books cover an era of hockey history that I feel is is a little bit under-researched, under-reported on um, by hockey historians. So I was really pleased um, to read both of these. They're, they're both well-researched books, um, and I think you'll enjoy them. Um, and we're, we're going to certainly delve into the newest of those and the one that, that involves the, the early days of the Washington Capitals today. And Steve, first, what sparked your interest in this admittedly esoteric topic? And how did that interest ultimately manifest itself into a book? And what can you tell us about the actual Coca-Cola uh, Bottlers Cup series of 1976? Well, what got me interested in this uh, this topic was um, like after I finished the first book on the seals, I was thinking of a, a topic to write about. And I've, I've always been really fascinated with the 1970s and hockey like like you were saying it's a very under-researched era and uh, un unless uh, you're talking about the Montreal Canadiens or the Philadelphia Flyers or you know Boston Bruins uh, you'll get a lot on those uh, teams but there's not a lot on the other teams in the league uh, so that's the reason why I kind of got into the Seals in the first place because it was such an underdeveloped and under-researched topic and um, as I was trying to think of a new topic um, just Nothing really came to mind right away, but uh, what I decided to do in the meantime, I was just writing an article for the Society for International Hockey Research. And um, of course, this is even much shorter, something about you know, three or 4,000 words. So um, I was trying to think of an interesting topic that no one had really talked about before. And it, I remembered that I'd seen in the hockey news when I, I bought some old back issues years and years ago. I remember seeing there was an article about the Capitals and Scouts going to Japan for a four-game series. Uh, and it just dawned on me, I thought, well, maybe now that there's more information available on the internet, maybe I can actually find something about that four-game series and just do a little um, a paper on, on that topic. And so I did that. And uh, afterwards, I just kind of thought, well, what if I kind of expanded on this? Is there, is there a way I could turn this, this article into a, a full-fledged book uh, where it talks about where the not so much the origins of the, the Bottlers Cup, but, uh, you know, like, why did this happen in the first place? And and the, the reasons why the scout, Capitals and Scouts were chosen to go to Japan, they've always said, well, it's because they were the two worst teams in the league, but not just the two worst teams in the league. They were so far behind everyone else in the league that it was pretty much decided by Christmas that they were going to be out of the playoffs anyway. It was, it was so easy to plan something um, and not worry about having egg on your face in the end. If the teams qualified for the playoffs in the end, there was no way they were going to make the playoffs. It was, especially the capitals were far, far out of the playoffs. The scouts were kind of on the fringe, but by February it was pretty obvious they were going to be out too. So um, there was no way that the plans for the Coca-Cola cup series could be um, thrown all out of whack. So, it was uh, that's the reason why they chose these two teams. But then I started thinking, well, why are these why are these two teams so bad compared to other expansion teams and other teams in the league? There must have been a reason why. So I kind of went backwards afterwards, going backwards to uh, you know their first season and then the expansion draft and then even further behind, uh, further back to the creation of the World Hockey Association, which is kind of where everything kind of started in 1972. And it was really from that point onward where you see how the Coca-Cola Bottlers Cup kind of happened. Um, and, and the reason why they had two teams that were able to participate in this series, it really goes back to 72. And, and in 72, as you mentioned, that, that's when the Caps were initially granted their franchise. It was in June June 8th of 1972. And at that point, the NHL's plan was to have 24 teams 
by decades end. This is something a lot of people don't realize, but Clarence Campbell came out and said that at that point. And like you said, Steve, this is kind of before the NHL had a sense of what impact the WHA was going to have on, on their business. But it seems as though really little thought was given to the survival of, of the new teams. And this is true, especially as expansion goes on in the NHL, once mm. those teams had been established. How much did the expansion draft rules of that era lead to an overall lack of stability and parity for probably more than a decade um, in, in the league, starting probably with, with that 72, and certainly with by the, by the time of the 74 expansion? Uh, and, and did you get I, I the sense, uh, sorry, sorry, did you get the sense that the league backed off that that 2014 plan largely because of the ongoing debacle with the scouts, the caps and, and other early expansion teams. Oh yeah, for sure. Like, and the, the capitals and scouts were just two examples of teams that were having some financial troubles, but you, you look at the seals, you look at other teams, you look at Pittsburgh and Los Angeles wasn't terribly strong. Atlanta wasn't doing very well. At least uh, initially they were, but then they kind of went downhill a little bit uh, attendance wise. So that by 76, like, there was a plan to expand to, to, to Seattle and Denver um, that fell through because they, they realized that they had enough problems in the NHL that the, the talent level wasn't high enough and the attendance was a problem in a lot of other cities around the league that there was just there was, there was no need for two more teams. So they, they kind of scrapped those expansion plans and uh, not to get to him myself, but the, the scouts eventually moved to Denver. Uh, and um, so the Denver market was still used. Uh, and then Seattle was just kind of abandoned until uh, you know, the last couple of years when they went back there. Uh, but th there was just no way that they were going to be able to expand two more teams. Like the, the markets were so saturated between the two leagues. You know, there were, in, in 75, there was, what, 18 teams in the NHL and there were 14 in the WHA. Well, that's 32 teams. And the NHL today is 32 teams. Yeah. Uh, and, and today that works because you have Europe and, and Russia. And uh, I mean, you have, you have players like, in, in the States, like how many American players are in the NHL now that 32 teams is, is more than feasible. But in 1975, there were no Russian players there were no checks. There were a couple of players from Sweden and Finland, but not a whole lot. And even, even in the States, there was just a few American players that were just kind of coming up. There wasn't enough talent to, to support 32 teams. And that's why you had these teams like the scouts and the capitals that were so weak, but the the other issue that um, came up around that time too, I think, also um, contributed to the scouts and the Capitals being so poor their first years was when the WHA came along and they just all of a sudden added twelve teams to the the landscape. There were sixty in the NHL. It was twenty eight total. There just wasn't enough players to go around. First of all, and the WHA was you know, picking players from the NHL to 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 um, to, to set their rosters. Well, that means minor league players are moving up to the NHL and to the WHA, filling every little gap they could find. Um, there just wasn't enough talent. So whenever you get to the expansion draft in 74, when the Capitals and Scouts were picking basically the 16th, 17th, 18th best players of every team, they, these were pretty much minor leaguers they were getting. And when you think about also, they were picking the 16th, 17th, 18th best players of teams like Vancouver, New York Islanders, the California Seals that weren't very strong. Like there just wasn't a lot of talent going into the uh, the new teams. Uh, like I mean, there was talent in the expansion draft. Don't get me wrong, but um, there just wasn't a lot. And another thing that people forget about at that time was in '74 when they were preparing for this expansion draft. A lot of teams in the NHL purposely they let some players they they exposed some players knowing perfectly well they weren't going to be picked by the Capitals or Scouts in the end. So one example is Frank Mahovlich, who was in Montreal at the time. So he, he came off about an 80 point season. He was still a top notch player, but he was left exposed in the draft. But yet the Capitals and Scouts didn't pick him. Why? Because he'd already signed a contract with the WHA. So Montreal was like, well, we'll let him go. He's not going to be with us anyway. And they were able to select someone else on their, to put on their protected list. So it's just more players that were kept away from Kansas city and, and, uh, and Washington, um, all because the WHA was around, and and this was this happened with Frank Mahovlich. Ha happened with guys like I think Dave Dryden and Paul Henderson was also uh, he also signed or was rumored to sign with the WHA. Um, the, um, Barry Long was another good defenseman with LA. He was uh, left exposed because he wasn't going to be coming back to the NHL anyway. So this all had a great impact on the two teams, and this is something that 
the previous expansion drafts, they never had to deal with that before. This 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 Rebel League that was coming in and had already taken a bunch of players and diluted the talent level. This was really the only expansion draft where you really had that problem. And 72 was, um, you know, this is before the WHA was even around, uh, just before. And uh, the 79 expansion draft, the WHA was gone. So you never had to really deal with those issues, except in 74. The other the other thing that, that factored into to that period of time as well was, I think those those first six, uh, if I remember right, those first six expansion teams from 67, 68, I think they paid $2 million as an entry fee each to get into the league. And by the time 1974 rolls around, you're getting $6 million from Kansas City and Washington. And I would also argue that the the stability of the ownership groups of the later expansion teams weren't probably as thoroughly vetted, if, if at all, uh, compared to those original six expansion teams, not to be confused with the original six and the other problem. So not only did the expansion fees triple in less than a decade, the quality of what you got as far as talent was diluted somewhat as you just illustrated. But meanwhile, salaries are getting out of control too, because of what you, what you just illuminated as well, the, the arrival of the WHA and now the competition for, you know, what had been less than a decade earlier, 120 major league jobs. Now there's, six, seven, eight hundred of them. And like you said, the talent pool just wasn't there. Mm-hmm. And so you factor all this in and it's just hard to to expect people to go out and shell out money for for games that are winding up eight, one, nine, three, night after night after night. Yeah, it was it was um just a perfect storm. Uh, a perfect storm of awful is what it was. Uh and and thankfully for for Washington, like where they really stood out uh, compared to Kansas City was the fan support. The fan support was actually surprisingly good in Washington, uh, considering how 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 weak the team was that first year, especially. They were still averaging 10,000 a game in, in Washington. Kansas City was averaging about seven or 7,300, and they had a better team. Um, and, but Washington was was drawing much better than Kansas City was. And still not, not great numbers that were going to um, – guarantee long-term success, but they had a good base early on and that, and that was, and they had good ownership as well from the, from the get-go with Abe Poland. Um, they, there was a nice central owner that was there and who cared and um, they, they, they really planned the team out well, even though they had um, you know, a poor on ice product, but that wasn't really their fault necessarily. They had good people in place and long-term you saw exactly. I mean, capital is still here today. They're doing very well. They had a good, good building blocks in place very early on, but Kansas city was like you were saying, they didn't vet the ownership very well. And I don't know if I wouldn't say necessarily that that was different in 74 than 67, because you can look at a team like the seals that wasn't really organized very properly from the get go. All of the other teams were not bad, but the seals were terribly organized from the beginning. Kansas city was in the same group. Like they had, um, they didn't, they didn't have one main owner. They had like 20 or 25 different people owning little percentages of the team. So immediately when the tenants started to drop and the team was losing money, no one wanted to fork over any extra money because these are all little one and 2% uh, owners. They didn't have deep pockets. So when they were asked to shell out another $50,000, it's like, sorry, we don't have the money. And they just backed away. Uh, but Washington had someone who could, spend a little bit extra money to uh, to keep the team afloat for a few more years. And I think that was one of the main differences that the, the fans were very good in Washington from the get-go. And they, they didn't have much of a product to watch that those first two years, or at least the first year and a half, I would say, but uh, they really stuck by their team and uh, um, they did more for promotions. They were, um, they were much more savvy in the, uh, in the front office, I would say, than Kansas city, which wasn't terribly organized and, and it showed in the end. It's interesting too that that both of these teams went to established uh, figures, uh, Hall of Fame players, coaches in the league to to lead their franchises in the early days. Um, guys that had had success um, in in other places at Original Six uh, Ports of Call, Sid Abel, uh, who went from Detroit to Kansas City to be the scouts GM, and Milt Schmidt, of course, who who went from uh, Boston to where he had just, as as the GM, led the Bruins to a Stanley Cup in 1970. I think he'd been kicked upstairs by the time they won their second cup. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, these two guys, they were pretty sour about, uh, pretty quickly about their, their respective experiences, trying to 
spin gold out of uh, the, these two respective franchises at that point. Yeah, I think you'd be right, Mike, uh, when, when you say that. Um, I, I think at, at the beginning, they were very excited to be going on this journey, uh, starting off a new team. I think that's kind of every GM's dream. You're, you're the first yeah. one, you're starting your team, you're organizing it, and this is this is your team. And But you're expecting a little bit more from, from the league. And the Capitals and Scouts didn't really get very much help from the league. Um, like they, they, they could have done something to... To, to sweeten the pot a little bit in the expansion draft, but they didn't. And there was frequent complaints, uh, even a month into the season, saying that we paid $6 million for a team, but what do we get? We got scraps. Like, there's there's nothing here. And uh, it, it took a – there's a reason why it took both those teams years to make the playoffs the first time. Uh, the Capitals, I think it was 83 was the first time they made the playoffs, and the Scouts – when they were in Colorado, they made it in 78 and, they, and it was, that's an asterisk. Um, that they made the playoffs that year, but um, they didn't have a lot to work with. And, um, but Schmidt and, and Abel, you have to give them a lot of credit that they, they had very little to work with, but they actually made some very astute moves in that first season, especially um, because you, you definitely notice uh, that the rosters get better as the, as the team gets, uh, goes, goes on, especially in Washington, the, uh, the, 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 the initial roster was very, very weak. It was mostly expansion draft players, but by the end of the season, they, they trade a lot of those expansion draft picks for more established players. Like, you know, you have your Stan Gilbertsons and your Ace Bailey's. Um, they, they got guys like Ron Lalonde, who yeah. was um, a good penalty killer. Uh, and um, they ended up um, getting guys like that, um, uh, Nelson Pyatt, and uh, to just strengthen the team a little bit. Uh, and then the next year they got Hartland Monahan and players who could give you 15, 20 goals a year. And like, that's how you build a team. You have to get rid of a, a couple of guys who are not quite working out and you bring in some other guys that you're going to hope are going to be, you know, just 15, 20 goal scores. to so just kind of give you a little building block. And that's how they, they went forward and they just made little trades like this over and over, over the next couple of years. And they just gradually uh, became more respectable team. So Milt Schmidt did a, uh, he didn't do necessarily a great job in the expansion draft. Like there was a lot of players he overlooked that he maybe should have picked, but he did in the end of that first season made a couple of good trades that sent the team in the right direction. And Sid Abel did as well uh, by um, trading a couple of spare parts to Detroit for Guy Charon, who was the, the leading scorer this the second season. Um, and uh, any Caps fan knows Guy Charon was yeah. one of their great players in the set late seventies. You know, you know, you know what he was able to do uh, in Kansas City. He was the same player. He was excellent, and uh, it was just through it, just trading a bunch of spare parts and bringing someone who wasn't having a great season, and you hope for the best, and then uh, it works out. And so they, they both made a couple of good moves uh, like that to set the team on the right path. And people in these parts know that the Caps had three um, different coaches that first season, and that Milk Schmidt eventually had to step behind the bench himself and. Would remain behind the bench uh, for the beginning of that that ill-fated second season as well. But reading your book, I I, I realized that, that something that I didn't know. I mean, more than more than one thing. Uh, but one thing that I thought was kind of interesting was that KC actually also they had four different coaches in a span of about a month uh, during a, the middle of their uh, second season as well. And that Eddie Bush. The poor guy wound up finishing uh, finishing up the season there in Kansas City. I think uh, had what one one win, which of course came at the Capitals' expense. Um, what did he wind up one twenty three and something for for his uh, his career? Yeah, it was. It's a. It's something that a lot of people are not aware of because it's not official. Um, the, the 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 three coaches. Yeah. So you have your Bep Gidelang, who was the the main coach uh, from the start of the year, and then he resigned in in a huff because he was upset that one of his players had broken curfew and they wouldn't. Uh, Sable wouldn't demote him. Yeah. Uh, so he enough. decided that's it. Like this guy thinks uh, this player thinks he can run the team. I'm out of here. Uh, and, that, and that's what happened for him. So then Sid Abel took over about three games, uh, just as an interim, uh, when he demoted himself for three games and became the coach um, and until he brought in Eddie Bush. 
But a lot of people forget that during the Bep Gidolin era, there was one game where Baz Bastien, who was the scouts assistant GM, he stepped in behind the bench when uh, Gidolin, I think he, there was an illness in the family and he had to go back home or something. But it's it's never been officially recognized that he was uh, a coach for that one game. So, so they did actually have four coaches in the span of about a month, I think it was, um, which I, th- I think is probably an NHL record. I've never actually looked it up, but I'm pretty sure I could safely assume that they've never had four uh, in, in in that shortest span anyway, in, on any team. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Um, another thing that I wonder about, you know, looking back now with the benefit of hindsight in, in this period, you, you, the Coca-Cola Cup itself was played out in April of, of 76. And that summer was, was a, there was a lot of unrest because ultimately Kansas City moved to Denver. Um, California moved to Cleveland, which was an ill-fated move as well. So, there, there was a whole, and there was a lot of jockeying for positions. Teams looking, you know, uh, there were guys looking to get teams and bring them to their cities. There were, you know, talks of mergers. There was all kinds of, uh, even some involvement on the side with WHA type teams. It, it was a, there was a lot of unrest that was going on. Meanwhile, 1976 is also a time when Clarence Campbell, who was the president of the NHL then, and and there was no commissioner. He was his title was president, and he was replaced in 1977 by John Ziegler. But Campbell, who had been on the on the job since about 1945 or 46 at this point, was also convicted for bribery in in a non NHL related scandal in Canada in 1976. He didn't go to jail, probably because I mean he's white and it's a white collar crime, but. Also, allegedly because of his age at that time, but still, you know, with him dealing with that on the side, I don't know. I don't sense that there was a whole lot of leadership that that was going on at the top of the ship in the league in those days. While all of this turmoil was just so constant and and ongoing with you know a number of the teams in the league. Yeah, I got that impression too. Uh, with uh, especially on like you're saying on the Kansas City side, um, primarily, but also on the, on the uh, the Seals and um, Cleveland side as well, that there was a lot of diddling going on. They just seemed to uh, be unable to make a decision, and and the league uh, was yeah. always threatening contraction. And then they say, "Well, we you get another week or so to get your ducks in order, and then uh, the week would go by." It's like, "Well, I'll give you another couple of days," and they they didn't seem to really be um, willing to really put their foot down and say, okay, like that's it. Kansas City franchise is done. This ain't working anymore. Uh, we're just going to contract you. They just kind of like, they'd always extend the deadline. And, and that went on even from the very beginning with, with the, the scouts, there was always something or other that they were just pushing deadlines back and they would be extending, uh, granting them a loan or something like that. And it was, it was all just constant, but the league also um, seemed to be afraid to, fold a franchise or even move a franchise it it, it seemed to be a source of embarrassment yeah. and something they hadn't done since world war ii um folding a franchise especially would have made them seem like they were like the wha which had franchise folding and moving left right and center this would have been an embarrassment for the nhl so they they really want to avoid that as much as possible uh, franchise shifts and especially contractions would have been embarrassing i think that's one of the reasons why they let that these situations linger for so long, but there was a definite clear lack of leadership, I would say in, in the league Um, or uh, um, I'm not sure why exactly. There's a good chance that uh, Campbell's legal problems was a, was a reason for it, but he didn't seem to be very hands-on with um, whatever was going on in the league um, at all. And, you know, one of the other interesting things uh, about this time was for the 1974 amateur draft, the league made 18-year-olds eligible for the first time and allowed teams, uh, I forget if they were allowed to take one or two uh, 18-year-olds in that draft. And that's how Mike Marson was drafted in 1974 to Washington as opposed to 1975. And what the, the effect that had on everything, it was it made 1970, the, the 1974 draft a real high-quality draft when you look back in retrospect. But it also really thinned the herd in 75. And that may have led to Milt Schmidt opting to trade away uh, his, again, first overall. He, he he missed on first overall with Greg Jolly in 1974. Um, also, that there's there some self-inflictedness to, to 
Washington's treatment of, of Greg Jolly and, and Marson as well. Um, those guys probably suffered greatly career-wise um, from, from how they were kind of forced into the lineup because, again, as you've illuminated here, um, there just wasn't a lot of talent. You kind of had to run those guys out on the ice because legitimately they were among your, you know, 18 or 20 best players in, in your system. But, you know, in, in that first summer, uh, Milt Schmidt opts to trade his first overall pick away to the Flyers and it doesn't get a whole lot of value for it. And that problem gets compounded when um, Max McNabb takes over midway through. And then a couple of weeks later, he doesn't have any sort of allegiance to Bill Clement, who was the major piece that came back in that trade. So Clement is sent packing and, and the wheels just start spinning. I mean, there was a lot of, um, like you said, there was, there were some good personnel moves made in that, that first year, but there were certainly some mistakes made as well. And one of the other things that I thought was interesting about that first off season, and I didn't know anything about this until your book was Kansas city trying to put together. And I, 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 I applaud Sid Abel's, um, uh, tenacity on this or at least has, has given it a go trying to put together a package to lure Marcel Dion from Detroit in a trade for for some reason as you point out the Red Wings were also in in disarray in this era too um, but they decided for some reason to trade Marcel Dion four years into a, a superstar career at that point and Kansas, you know, Sid gets wind of this and tries to put together a, a package which ultimately falls short because, come on, it's it's pretty hard to spin Marcel Dion of, of what's in the cupboard in, in Kansas City. But, I mean, ultimately, when you look back, the Kings got him from the wings and they, they gave up uh, Terry Harper, who was a, a 35-year-old defenseman at that time. History shows he still had a couple of years left, a couple of good years left. But and and uh, Dan Maloney, who was a you know a middle six winger, um, that doesn't seem like a whole lot of value for for Marcel Dion at that point of his career. No, that was uh, I was I was surprised when I read about that. I think it was in the, it might have been the hockey news. I saw a, a blurb about that, and uh, um, I, I don't know how serious they 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 thought they were going to be trying to get Marcel Dion. Uh, uh, if, if they would have, if they won Marcel Dion, they would have had to probably give Wolf Paymont. That would have been yeah. the only real asset they had. Um, and um, I think overall he would have been probably a better choice than uh, Terry Harper and, uh, and yep. Dan Maloney. But mm-hmm. um, the, the scouts weren't prepared to to part with um, Paymont. That was the the main problem. Like the, the, there was no way they were going to let him go. The other issue too, uh, the, the thing I'm wondering why they would have even thought about getting Dion is like how they would have afforded him. Like, Kansas City was already having a hard enough time paying its players as it is. I can't imagine they would go for Dion, who would have been one of the the highest paid players in the league. Um, there's, I, I don't know how they would have done having Dion and possibly even Paymont at the same time. There's no way they could have done that, uh, uh, not with the, the money problems they were having. Uh, but it was interesting to, to find out they were actually kicking the tires on Dion to see if they could uh, what they could do to get him. But uh, like like anyone else, I mean, I've I've heard rumors that the the Maple Leafs are trying to get Patrick Kane right now, or that he'd be a good landing spot. Well. Yeah, everyone wants Patrick Kane, but I mean, like, where are you going to fit him into your lineup when you have, you know, uh, you know, five bucks, you're five bucks under the cap. There's no way you're going to fit uh, a Patrick Kane under there unless you do a massive overhaul. So it's like every team is interested in players like that. But how realistic is it to get um, uh, get one of these guys in your lineup? But that's the that's the question mark to me. When you look back at this this period of time in in the NHL, you know those those two teams that came in in 1970, Buffalo and and uh, Vancouver, even though, even though neither has both have yet to win the Stanley cup, they've, they've both been strong franchises throughout. They, they've had fan support that they were, they were Buffalo ramped up pretty quick in Vancouver uh, to a lesser extent, but, but they were competitive. Um, And it it just seems like the teams, and, and I would include the Islanders and probably Philadelphia in this group too, the teams that drafted really well early on in the amateur draft were the ones that, that dug themselves out of that 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 early kind of expansion hole, and the yeah. ones that didn't were left sort of spinning their wheels. So that that's one thing that from that era that really hasn't changed because that's kind of the way it is in, in the modern NHL as well. But when you look back at those those early drafts of, of the teams that I mentioned, um, they were pulling one or two or three regular players 
every year. And, and that just was not the case for, for the scouts and, and the caps in those early days. Yeah. They, they, they both came along at absolutely the worst possible time um, because the, you look at the amateur drafts that came just before, look at 74 uh, or sorry, sorry, 73, uh, you had Dennis Potvin, which is who's number one. I think um, Tom Lisiak might have been number two. And then uh, a couple of years before, they had Guy Lafleur and Marcel Dion, both in the same draft. And before that, you had Gilbert Perrault and, you know, Daryl Sittler and, the, and Bobby Clark. And these guys that came along, all these like Hall of Fame players. And then you look at 74, there's almost no Hall of Famers whatsoever, even all-stars in that draft. And it's the same thing in 75, 76, 77. There's, there's, there was no real um, blue chip prospects there was there was no Lafleurs or Dion's in the draft those years and this is when the scouts and capitals just desperately needed like a superstar player and there just weren't any that were uh, in in the draft that year it wasn't you can argue until maybe like 79 or so or maybe 78 uh, when uh, you know Mike Bossy was in that one um or in 77 sorry um there there, there might have been a chance they could have got someone there but uh there, there wasn't a lot available in those first three drafts especially and they desperately needed some someone who could just come in and take over the franchise. But, uh, you know, Greg Jolly and Mike Marson, as much talent as they had, they weren't really that superstar player. They would have been good, uh, you know, maybe Marson would be like a, maybe a middle six player, maybe a second liner or something if he'd been better surrounded. And Greg Jolly could have been could have been a good top four defenseman. Again, if he'd been surrounded by better talent and if he had better luck with, with injuries – he could have maybe been a maybe a top two defenseman or even even a number one defenseman, but just not the same level as Bobby Orr. Um, like that was a huge mistake putting that kind of pressure on that yeah. poor kid. Uh, he might have been a very very good defenseman, but calling the next Bobby Orr off the bat pretty much killed his career, uh, just like it did so many other defensemen yeah. that came before him. You look at Rick Hampton in in California it was yeah. the same thing. Call him the next Bobby Orr and. Yeah, he was he was a decent defenseman, but you're never going to be the next Bobby Orth. Let's face it. Um, so the, the, they had a really hard time just coming along at that moment when the the, the amateur drafts were incredibly weak, and uh, like there were some good players that were there, but they were really buried in in the in the mix. And um, like the Islanders were lucky they got uh, Brian Trottier out of one of those drafts, and you know there were good players in there, but not players that you would. Um, immediately think of being a number one uh, overall pick like uh, Dennis Potvin was a shoe in number one. Uh, there was no one like that in those three first drafts. Yeah, like you said, the, the Caps famously passed on Clark Gillies to take mm. Greg Jolie, and they passed on Trottier to take Mike Marson in, in the second round of, yeah. of that draft. Um, let, let's talk about this, this Coca-Cola Bottlers Cup series in Japan in April of 1976. Kind of a wild footnote in NHL history, looking back on it now. And, you know, these days, we, I mean, we've seen for decades now the NHL's involvement in, in playing in, in European uh, countries and, and even China since, since then. But this was kind of their first foray into international um, waters, so to speak, as far as trying to grow the game and, and showcase the game outside of North American soil. Um, Talk a little bit about how how this whole thing came about, and, and and once these these players found out, I guess it was sort of in March of that season that they'd be going, and there was kind of a jockeying for position of guys. Oh boy, I got to be on the roster when when this goes down so that I can get this because you know it was it was a it was a real perk, and I you know you, you you could sense that for what these guys had endured, most of them for like 160 games over the course of two seasons, this was something that that kind of I don't want to say made it all worthwhile because I don't think there was anything that, that could have done that but it, I think it, it it boosted it seemed to certainly boost their spirits quite a bit yeah the the the, the trip to Japan the, the players I spoke to were just so enthused about uh, talking about it they had such a great experience over in Japan most of them had never been there before yeah. they They'd maybe been to Europe for a tournament or two or something, but they'd never been to Japan before. So this was, and they got to go with their wives and their girlfriends. Mm. And um, so it was, a, it was a really a fun trip for, um, for, for the players. Um, how it all came about is it's never been totally clear. I have, I've seen in the actual, uh, one of the, the game programs for uh, the, the Bottlers Cup, and it was Ron Lalone who sent me, um, he, he kept one all these years. He sent me um, the, 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 the magazine so I could take a look through it. And it, it doesn't make it entirely clear why the series took place. All, the, all we know is that 
Uh, one was the American Bicentennial in 76. Uh, it was Coca-Cola's 90th anniversary in 76 as well. So there was those two events that kind of got them thinking like, well, maybe we could do something um, uh, to, to celebrate the two at the same, the two things at the same time. Maybe we can uh, kind of get something going. Uh, and um, someone there at Coca-Cola thought maybe we can invite some NHL teams over to play a couple of games and uh, just, you know, entertain the people here. And uh, um, there's also been, uh, there's also a possibility the NHL was kind of testing the waters a little bit, seeing like, well, if we sent someone to Japan, how would it, how would it go over? Because the the WHA was starting to send teams over to Europe to do training camps, participate in the Izvestia Cup. I think the year after the Coca-Cola Cup, the Winnipeg Jets played the Russians in Japan, the same places that uh, mm. in Tokyo, again, where the Caps and Scouts played. So there was the WHA had always planned on making it a truly world league. And they were starting to just slowly get into different countries and, uh, and put some feelers out there. So maybe the NHL was starting to feel a bit of pressure and thinking we've got to do something and get our foot in the door uh, and just to see what the reaction would be. So there's, there's that possibility. Although I've never seen anything really written out clearly saying that's what it was, but there might've been that possibility as well, just to see what they could do with um, hockey in Japan. Um, hockey wasn't very popular in Japan. They, they did play, but it wasn't a super um, popular sport. Even now it's not that popular, but it's, it's really more well-known now than it was back then. Uh, and um, yeah, they just decided we're going to send a couple of teams, but the, the only thing we got to decide is, on, is what teams we're going to send over. And you would think that, well, make more sense. Want to send the Montreal Canadiens and Philadelphia Flyers, you know, like, you got your two best teams. Want to send them them over to promote the sport, but problem is you got them playing the playoffs, and they're probably going on a long run until May. I think in those days the cup would usually be around in May. They would uh, decide it. So um, we can send non-playoff teams, and again, we could send someone like Minnesota or California. But there's always a possibility that one of those teams could go on a five-game winning streak, and then all of a sudden they could make the playoffs. So you got to pick two teams that are so far behind everyone else that there's no chance that you can print t-shirts and pennants and then have to reprint them all afterwards so they they picked the capitals and the scouts the capitals were dead last in january i think they won three games by the all-star break maybe four uh so they were pretty much out of it the scouts were about i think they were one point out of a playoff spot in january or maybe on new year's eve or something like that so there's there wasn't any talk of the Coca-Cola Cup at that point. And certainly by the scouts record, you wouldn't have thought they would be going to Japan because they were right in the middle of the playoff race. But they went on a, a losing streak, a winless streak for the ages. They they won one of their last 44 games and they went winless in their last 27. So that pretty much killed their playoff chances. So you had your two teams that were bad enough to send to Japan. And and that's why they were that's why it was such a weird thing to send the two worst teams in the NHL over to uh, Japan, but it actually made some sense to, to do this because you couldn't send any other teams there theoretically because there, you couldn't really guarantee anything um, except that these two teams were going to finish last. There was no way to make the playoffs and you could definitely promote something, uh, get some promotions started with these teams. Uh, and uh, so that's the reason why they were, they were chosen to go uh, to play this series. And as you point out in the book, too, the, the Caps set an NHL record early in that 75-76 season with the longest winless streak in NHL history. But that that record didn't last until the end of the season because Kansas <laughs> City way, way, way went went past it. I think it, it would, like you said, 27 straight uh, games winless there at the end of the season. Um, when they got to Japan, they, they played – essentially back-to-back -back games in Sapporo, had an off day for travel, and then played back-to-back -back games in, in Tokyo. So this was, you know, this was a business trip too, or at least that's certainly the way the Caps approached it. And Kansas City had a little bit of a different uh, um, mindset, it seemed like. And it's, talk about how, how sort of things played out once, once they were over there and how wild it was that they were actually playing on a, a swimming pool for a couple of yeah. games. So the, um, the the Capitals definitely took this, as, or especially I, sh I should I should Tommy McVie, Tommy McVie <laughs> their their coach, uh, he came in about mid season in seventy five seventy six, and he completely revolutionized the franchise. 
Um, it had been a bit of a country club before, uh, according to um, uh, Bernie Wolf and Ron Lalone I spoke to. They said that uh, uh, when Tommy V came in, he said, gentlemen, this country club is closed. And he immediately in instilled uh, different rules. Um, Jack Lynch had told me, uh, what was the line? He, he said something that uh, if you're five minutes early, you're already 10 minutes late. So he expected, McVie expected everyone to be on time for practice 15 minutes early. There was no excuse. He was a blue collar guy. He believed that if, you know, these blue collar schlubs can trek all the way downtown through rush hour traffic and be at the office at eight o'clock in the morning, you guys who are, are well-paid hockey players can definitely be at practice 15 minutes early. So he instilled a really strong work ethic in the team. And, and a lot of the players really appreciate it. I know that the, the, all the ones I spoke to love playing for McVie. They thought he was a breath of fresh air. Uh, his techniques were a bit strange. He was very demanding, but he whipped them into shape. Um, it took about two or three weeks and a lot of losing because they were just exhausted those first few weeks he was there. But eventually they started to win some games with McVie behind the bench. And McVie fully expected his team to win that Coca-Cola Cup. There was He wanted them to sweep it. There was no excuse for him. Uh, and there was even a story that uh, Bernie Wolf had told me when they at the end of the season they flew out to Japan. They had a stopover in Hawaii. Um, and there was some engine trouble with the plane or something. So there was a, lay, um, a, a layover in, in Hawaii and the players got a little bit tipsy in the airport bar. And McVie, when he found out about this, when they landed in Japan, he immediately called a practice. Uh, and uh, so he's dogging his players and he's um, uh, so bad that to the point where they're, some of them are puking over the, uh, over the boards onto the cameramen. They're taking pictures and it was, uh, he, he fully expected them to win. And um, he used to play marching music in the, uh, the dressing room uh, to get the players motivated because he found that whenever he was running uh, around a, like a high school, he was doing like a, just running the, 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 the track just to keep himself in shape. And there was a high school band that was playing outside and he noticed that after he listened to that music while he was running, he ran his best time ever. So he started doing this with his minor league team when he was in, in Dayton and he, he brought that over to Washington and the players thought it was, it was, they thought it was nuts to do this, but before they knew it, their feet were moving along and they were having, a, they were starting to get motivated and they were going out and they'd play a great game after. So that there's little things like that, that he did to change the culture of the team. And it really made a, a big difference. And that was the attitude when he, when they got to Japan, that like, we are going to win this thing. Uh, this is, uh, Mike Lampman had told, I believe it was Mike Lampman who told me that um, like this was preparation for the next season. That's what it was. McVie, this is like training camp for October or for September. Um, he was going to do it early and he was going to start taking notes and seeing who's going to be on my team in the, in starting in September, October. Um, that's what it was for McVie. It was preparation for the next season. And, and, and it showed that the Capitals were significantly better that third season. They, they were all of a sudden they were competitive and they were winning games regularly. McVie was um, second in, to, in voting for uh, coach of the year. So, I mean, he did something very well uh, with the team. Kansas City, on the other hand, was in complete turmoil uh, from about mid-season onward. They were they started losing games and losing just creates more losing and more losing and they just couldn't write the ship. And then the players just kind of got, I don't want to say they were unmotivated, but you know, when you start losing too much, also it becomes just a long running joke. And um, you just, you just believe that you can't win it after a while. Like you, you start blowing leads in the third period, you, you, you hold your stick a little bit tighter and you can see that can't see things are just going downhill. It's, it's, it's funny that as the scouts are going downhill, the caps are going uphill. They were going in complete opposite directions and almost like to the day, to yeah. the day when McVie was hired and Schmidt uh, resigned, it was almost the same day, maybe a day apart. Yeah. And yeah. that's when the teams went in opposite directions. Um, it, it's, it's funny how it happened like that, but can't say kind of took that same kind of attitude to the, to Japan. Uh, I don't want to say they, they coasted through the games, like that wasn't what they did at all, but there was, there was more of an emphasis, like we're going to go and we're going to put on a show. We're going to have a good time. This is a, a, a once in a lifetime trip. We're going to be on, we're going to enjoy the sites uh, and we're going to put on a good show. We're going to be competitive. We're going to hit, but you know, we're not going to kill ourselves doing this. Uh, it's, it was, it was meant to be, you know, a, a fun exhibition series. Uh, but McVie definitely, the players certainly thought it was uh, you know, a fun trip, but McVie definitely wanted to win that series. Uh, he had something to prove. And I think he wanted his team to prove that they could win something. I love some of the, the photos that you included in the book too, 
where there's one where you can see just how Spartan the boards are in the, in the I think it was in the Tokyo arena. Yeah. The Sapporo arena had, had actually been used for the Olympics in, in mm-hmm. 72. Um, but I think it was the Tokyo arena that was, that was on a, on a swimming pool. Yes. Yeah. So th- those photos, uh, by the way, I got those from most of them from, uh, from Robin Burns, who was uh, in Kansas city. Yeah. Um, he was absolutely incredible. Um, I've, I've spoken with him for many years um, for my first article and then for the book. And he mentioned that he had a, a whole photo album full of photos from the series. And I, I'd asked him if I could see them. And he's in, instead of, I thought maybe he would just scan them for me and send them over to me, but he sent me the entire photo album, wow. uh, a hard copy in a box. And so I was like, this is like the Holy grail of like, cool. photos. I've, I've never seen any photos from the series ever. Wow. Um, so it was, it was great for him to send me those. And I scanned everything and, and I picked the best ones. These were all like Polaroids from the seventies. So, I mean, some photos were kind of like, you know, you know, mm-hmm. back in the day when you take photos and have to get them developed, they didn't always turn out as well as you wanted to. So, um, so I picked up the best ones. There was a lot of them and uh, yeah, you can see the rickety boards on some of them. It, it was wonderful to see, all the stories I'd heard about the ring conditions and to see it like the rickety boards and um, around the back of the net, there was uh, it was a fishing net instead, instead of plexiglass. So the pucks, when you would shoot them into the net, they just kind of bounce back into the uh, Bernie Wolf. It said they just kind of boomerang back Yikes. into back onto the ice. And, uh, you know, the goaltenders are having to watch the back of their heads. They're going to get hit or something. Uh, so there was that. And you could see, behind in, in some of the photos and I, I include those in the book for sure because i thought they were, they were just fantastic uh behind uh, bernie wolf's net you can see there's three diving boards uh right behind so it proves that they played on a skating rink and i don't uh, on, on a swimming pool i'm not sure the logistics of how they could put ice on a swimming pool but they definitely did it uh and um it's uh it, it was it was a wild um it, it's incredible that they were that the NHL PA I'm guessing didn't really care too much about safety in those days, but they just let the slide. There's absolutely no chance that this kind of series would take place on this kind of, these kinds of conditions, the players, uh, the coaches, managers would balk at it instantly. There's no way, but back in those days, it was just like, well, it's a little quirk. Sure. Why not? The, 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 the boards were not properly secured. They were just kind of held in place with these cement blocks. And you can see that you can see it briefly in another photo in the book but it's it's hard to see but you can definitely see there's like cement blocks that are just holding the boards in place so whenever you hit a player the boards would move um so the players had an understanding according to mike lampman he said yeah. they had an understanding that we're not going to hit each other too hard against the boards because there's a good chance if we get hit we're going to go through them or over them um there was even beyond the boards there was so the the, the ice surface was larger than the the rink if that makes any sense like the the, the the ice surface was, uh, I, don't, I don't know the, the actual size, but the, they put the boards on top of it. So the ice would continue beyond the boards yeah, board, on yeah. each side. And so at one point um, on the, on the Capitals bench, and this is Robin Burns told me this story. He said that uh, um, Ace Bailey had been benched by McVie and they also had not, a, I don't know if a contentious relationship, but Bailey was always pulling pranks and goofing around. Like he was, he, he was a fun loving guy. And this is just another example of how, how he was. Um, he was benched by McVie, and at one point he kind of get uh, Bailey gets up and he starts doing these stops and starts behind the bench, skating on this ice. And Robin Burns looks at him, he's like, "What are you doing, Ace?" And he says, "Oh, I'm trying to work up two beer thirst, just trying to prove to McVie that uh, he's ready to get back in the game." So, uh, uh, and Burns loved that story, and I, I told to Ron alone. He thought it was great too because everyone said like that was Ace, like that was yeah. who he was, and. No one was surprised by any of the stories that you ever heard about Ace. And uh, there's a lot of them in, in the, the book, by the way, because uh, everyone had something about Ace Bailey to say. And that was one of my favorite stories about them doing stops and starts behind the bench like that. It was, uh, uh, but it just shows the kind of weird rink conditions they had in Tokyo <laughs> during that series. Yeah, I love that story too. And the book's loaded with with great stories like, like that. And um, you're right. Ace uh, was one of those guys that, was was always looking to and and you pointed out in the book too his his greatest satisfaction came from from you know sort of orchestrating these things canceling practices and you know killing buses as far as that are you know supposed to pick up the players and take them to practice and 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 while all you know getting away with it because no, nobody could could for sure and definitively pin anything on him so 
there, there's a lot of good good things uh, in the book of it, on, on both sides, both teams. And like you say, Robin Burns was great. And well, you know, one of the things that he says uh, that's a, that's an absolute hockey truism, where he was talking about, you know, kind of the scouts decline there in the, that that was really hastened in the middle of that second season. Good teams find a way to win, and bad teams find a way to to lose, and that, that's that's one of the hockey truisms that that's lasted forever and, and will last forever. What, what was your sense, Steve, of of how these guys uh, came to term with their their expansion lot in life uh, over the years? I'm sure that those those two years when they were going through them were were brutal and and just you know demoralizing. And I I mean I can't imagine. I've, covered a couple of rugged teams in my time here, but nothing approaching that. And I just wonder how those, and I've talked to a few guys, Ron Lalonde is awesome. Uh, Bill Mickelson as well. I've had conversations with these guys over the years. What's your sense of how they've sort of come to accept their, their role in all this uh, as time has, has gone by. Yeah. You know, Mike, it's, it's, it's interesting that, um, you know, I've, I've kind of you've you've probably noticed that uh, you know most of what I write about is about you know bad hockey teams like I I I've, I I I kind of choose to stay away from the the good teams because it's already been written it's already been done and yeah. uh, you know like for the the California Seals who were you know just as as bad for a very very long period of time the players were so willing to talk about their experiences and there was it was so much easier to contact players from the the Seals. Um, and not just myself, but even in, in uh, another book that was written a few years before mine by Brad Kurtzberg, yeah. um, he, he interviewed just about everyone in the SEALs. Like, everyone was very willing to talk. But with, with the Capitals and Scouts, it was much more difficult to to speak to, uh, to, play, to get players to, to, um, to even just answer my, my letters or my emails. Uh, and I'd, I'd read in Sports Illustrated, uh, I forget when it was written a few years ago, maybe five, six years ago, and, and the, the, the author of the article had said the same thing. He said, a lot of players, still, it's it's a very sore point for, yeah. for a lot of them. Um, and I noticed for Kansas City, it was the same thing. It was very hard to contact players um, to just get a response from them. And it's um, there's a lot of sore spots with the um, th- those two first seasons anyway. Um, and, and others are fine with it and they, they're very willing to speak like Robin Burns, for example, he'll, he'll, he'll speak to anyone about his experience in the NHL. He loves to, to talk about, uh, his experiences in the NHL and hockey in general. And, yeah. uh, but, but a lot of other players, they just like, no, they, they'll just politely refuse. Uh, they, it's just bad memories for them in, in a lot of cases. And, uh, um, but I, I, I thought it was, it was funny that Kansas City and Washington had more bad feelings than than the California players did, and because um, the California players seemed like they just kind of laughed it off, and uh, they they thought it's like oh it's, it was maybe it was just like just a, such a crazy screwed up team that they just kind of laugh it off and it's like that's just the way it was, and we were part of this crazy journey. It was it was fun, and uh, um, but the Capitals and Scouts are still not quite at that spot yet, and um, but a lot of them weren't there as long either. They were kind of there couple of months, a year, and then they move on. They were really the, this initial expansion roster as opposed to the seals were had, they had players that were there for four or five years. And um, so maybe that's a bit of a difference too, that they you know they're there longer. They, they establish more roots and more friends and more happy memories um, as opposed to cap the capitals and scouts didn't have a lot of those happy memories and uh, didn't really establish any roots in some cases uh, that it was, um, it was harder to, uh, to get them to speak. Any big, personal takeaways from from the experience of writing the book uh, especially um, given you know what you brought to the table going in what your thoughts were and, and the, you know the reason as you as you mentioned earlier the reason for starting the project and now that it's it's in print and it's out there and people can buy it and any any anything surprise you or any uh, any big takeaways for yourself uh, I don't know if there was anything terribly surprising I, I think the uh like the, the greatest takeaway I think was just finding out like what happened to the Coca-Cola bottlers cup. Like that was always when I'd written my first article, I remember, and I'd, I'd contacted you about that as well. Yeah. We, we emailed each other a little bit uh, and you, you enlightened me a little bit as to what happened to it. And it, um, you, you remember that you'd taken pictures of it. It's, it's they're, they're online right now. Yeah. Uh, so I knew it, it existed, but, but even then to, uh, um, in your email exchange, I remember you, you had forgotten where it was. Like you, you knew it was there, but 
it kind of been it kind of disappeared so that was always in the back of my mind is like what happened to that cup and in my article that's kind of where it ends it's like it's there somewhere but we don't know where it is so it's it's a bit of a mystery but now I found out that it does still exist. It, it is, um, it's still the, the Capitol's um, office. Uh, and I thought that was great. I was able to just confirm, okay, this thing does still exist. It is there. Um, it would be great if it would be uh, put on display either in Washington or at the Hockey Hall of Fame or something. It's a, it's a, it's a quirky little artifact. It's not worth very much money or something like that. It's, it looks like a peewee trophy. Uh, or something that a tennis player would win after Wimbledon or something like that, or a tennis tournament. It's, um, it, it's, it's a very quirky little trophy, but it's something that would be wonderful if it would be um, displayed and uh, just shown to um, uh, the public because it's a, it's, a, it's a very quirky footnote in NHL history that a lot of people have kind of forgotten about, and you just see little mentions of it once in a while, but there's not a lot about it. Uh, it's written really extensively, and that's uh, that's one thing that uh, would be, I guess, my takeaway would be um, uh, that I'm glad that it still exists. It's there, uh, but it'd be great if it would be um, displayed some way and uh, and, and showed to uh, to the world. I agree with you, and it's actually a number of feet from my office right now. I'm I'm in my office in in Arlington, and it's in Chris Wagner's office, which yeah. is just a couple offices away from mine. And I saw it last week when. Uh, Wags and I had a conversation and I read in your book about George Parr. And, and actually, I was with George Parr when he went on this recon mission <laughs> to um, this was probably uh, less than a week before they blew up um, the Capitol Center. And, and George asked me, he was like, Bogues, you want to take a run out to um, Landover and just see if there's anything there that we should we should grab? And And this was such a surreal experience for me, Steve, because. George drove his car into the building and we actually were driving, if you can imagine this, driving his car on the concourse. There's a vehicle driving. There's nobody in this building. It's completely empty. It's it's set for demolition. And, and we're driving a car around the concourse where people mingled between periods, you know, years before. And we find this old storage room and there's some photographs that we rescued, some um some old media guides and whatnot, and this trophy that, you know, we really didn't even know, you know, what the heck is this thing? And we just kind of said, well, this might have some, some value. We, we, you know, we did not by any means take everything. It was, it was, we did grab a couple of seats as well, which uh, I donated mine to a, a charity for an auction. I'm not sure what George did with, with his, but, uh, it was a um, a unique and and um, somewhat chilling experience to be mm-hmm. in in that that building um, just days before that building was uh, no more, and and that's when the the cup itself was rescued. So it's 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 not just another kind of bizarre footnote uh, on top of that. Uh, last thing before we let you go, and I've really enjoyed. Uh, our conversation here. And I, I would, uh, again, highly re- recommend both of your books uh, to anyone who's out there uh, who's interested in certainly the history of the capitals, because um, what you've done here is is really put a spotlight on those first two seasons and how difficult they were. Um, I don't think anybody else has, has done that at any point, really, um, to the extent that you have here. And, and I think, again, it's a fascinating period of, of hockey history um, where a lot of uh, decisions, uh, questionable decisions were made uh, uh, at teams and in the league offices, but um, they, they muddled through it. But just wondering, um, any thoughts uh, on what your next project uh, might be now that now that this one's been put to bed? Uh, yeah, my, uh, my next book, I've been kind of puttering around for a little bit. Uh, I haven't worked on it in a couple of months, I would say, because I was so busy uh, just put the final touches on, on this one here and doing the indexing and everything like that. So it's been on the back burner for a little bit. Uh, but uh, my next book, I'm hoping to just, um, it's, it's going to be more of a history, like a more of a general history of hockey in the 1970s. But um, what I want, I don't, I don't want, again, like I was saying before, I don't like to focus on the the successes of, of the decade. Yeah. I want to focus on the, the forgotten stories. So what I'm hoping to do is is to create a, a book that's going to have like a series of smaller, um, shorter chapters um, and uh, different quirky events that yeah. uh, or 
interesting players that um, were kind of forgotten in the in the decade. Uh, um, you know, for example, like the history of the Ottawa Civics and the WHA. So yeah. I, I live in Ottawa right now, yeah. actually. Uh, so it's been uh, something that just kind of um, became a bit more interesting for me to, to look at. Like I, I've been in the city now for you know, 15 or 20 years now um, that uh, I know where the city of Ottawa now is, is home to read about the Ottawa civics is interesting because now I can kind of piece it all together. So, but it's obviously, it's, it's too short to mention in a whole book. So it will be like one chapter on that and one chapter on, um, you know, just particular games that were impactful in the seventies, but maybe a bit forgotten. Um, you know, I, I, I want to talk about how uh, the Minnesota North stars or sorry, the Cleveland Barons indirectly yeah. led to the, um, the end of the Montreal Canadiens Stanley Cup dynasty and how that takes place. So it's little little vignettes like that and short chapters that I want to do and um, maybe put like just in between the chapters um, little tie-ins to kind of get the decade to flow along in, in the whole book. But that's where I'd like to go with the next uh, book is uh, more forgotten stories, but uh, not, not one particular team. It's going to be more of a league uh, or even like a pro, a pro hockey um, history of the 1970s. That sounds fantastic, and I can't wait to uh, sink my teeth into that one. But uh, for today, Steve, thanks thanks for your time, and and thanks for this book. Uh, like I say, I think it's a, it's a real good uh, read for 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 anyone, and incredibly well researched. Kudos to you, and thanks for spending some time with us here on Break the Ice. This has been Break the Ice with Mike Vogel, presented by Power Up Premium Trail Mix, the official trail mix of the Washington Capitals. If you like the show, please leave a review.